Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors, wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Well, I find at the, at the peak of quarantine, I would I would go days and not remember when I took my last shower. So, yeah, I find uh, you really are getting into areas that I don't think we really <laughs> want to be sharing. That <laughs> <laughs> was liberal. You know, we used to do this in a in a studio, Shane, and people would come to, to Burbank and sit across the table for us, and that necessitated, you know, showering, wearing pants, putting on shoes. <laughs> <laughs> None of which he yeah. does. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'll put on a shirt. Um, well, you know, there's one guy who could care less whether he got COVID because he's been moaning the whole thing because he was, his name is Jeffrey Tubin, you know. <laughs> this whole <Yeah. laughs> pandemic had a particularly toxic effect for him. So Yes, yes. How, how, I don't even know, how do you end up doing that? That just seems. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I think you do it, but I think you had You'd have to be pretty sharp and pretty confident to think in front of a computer. No one can. I just assume you can see me, even if I have a barrier. Right. <laughs> yes. It's like I keep tape over the camera when I'm not doing this. Um. <laughs> this is the movies that made me with your hosts Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Hey, you want to talk about some movies? Should we do that, Joe? Or that be uh, sure? Not, we've got Shane Black here. I mean, I don't. I don't even. We don't. Do, we, do you want us to give you an introduction, Shane? It's like it's Shane fucking Black. It's uh, Shane is one of the great, great, great screenwriters of of the modern era. Great filmmaker, director. Um, yeah, many, many introduction, but nothing. It, it, it's a. I, I guess I can say along with with you and Joe uh, the benefit that I enjoy more than anything is just simply being a survivor. I've been around a long time uh, making a lot of films and other people, other writers who I came up with, you know, you don't really see them anymore. Like uh, I always wonder what happened to Cash and Epps or Shrike and Butler, you know, those people. Mm -hmm. And the idea that I'm permitted even uh, with reservation to continue um, at my ripe age of 59, making movies is uh, something for which I feel particularly blessed. So. But you don't have to name the movies. They can look at I they, they know, by the way. If they're, oh, they know if they're listening that. to us. I, I, um, mm-hmm. well, yeah, the midst, I, I would just say are the midst of those. For, for me, there, there's two that um, uh, one you wrote, direct one, one you wrote. Um, obviously, The Nice Guys, mm-hmm. which I just find addictive. It's just like I can, 
if we hadn't finished it at 12 o'clock last night, I could have started and watched it all over again. Um, and uh, uh, I have I have a weird affection. I shouldn't say that to the writer. I have a weird affection for Last Boy Scout. It just makes me happy. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's it, it might be my favorite Bruce Willis movie from that era. Is that um, <laughs> I I like the first half. It's, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've always wanted to get you on the show. Uh, and, uh, trying to see the posters behind your head and, uh, ah, he's got sweet smell of success. Uh, he's got, uh, what's the, what's the curse? Um, high and low, high and low, Italian poster, uh, uh, hard, hard times. times, good, the bad, the ugly, Liberty Valance. Um, oh, Psycho, Psycho and the Beguiled. He's a beguiled. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Book. And, and uh, Alfredo Garcia. Yeah, I'm not the fan of that that other people are, but. Uh, a lot of people don't like, I, it's, a, it's an acquired taste for some. I understand that. Well, there's the worst loop line in history in that movie. Where <laughs> he, um, they come to get this address from a guy and they end up shooting him. And as he falls, papers in his hand, but obviously people were getting it. So he goes, he gets shot. Oh, here's the address. And he literally said, here's the address as he, as he dies. Uh, I'm betting that was a note. Yeah. <laughs> it's still a better picture than a convoy. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know what it, but yeah, I, every now and then for my birthday, I'll have a bunch of people over and make them watch Alfredo Garcia. Cause it's, Seems like the only way to get more than two or three people to join you for it. it uh, I don't know. I love it. I love it. It's, well, then you should probably watch Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. As well. I didn't. Didn't eight times that's more. Right, heads. That's right. Didn't didn't uh, didn't click with me the same way. I don't know. But um, but we're not here to talk about my movies. We're here to talk about Shane's. Well, you actually share a couple. I mean, I, for instance, uh, one of the movies I'd mentioned to you previously that was tremendously influential for me was a Sweet Smell of Success. It's just yeah. I mean, also. One I didn't mention, but which was tremendously powerfully influential, was uh, Barry Levinson's Diner. Mm. And I don't think it's any coincidence that there's a character in Diner who keeps poking his head in and like, shouting lines from a movie, and they're like, movie's a of success. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. In fact, that was the first. I saw, I saw Diner. I don't know. Did you? Way before I saw Sweet Smell. Yeah, me too. Um, and, uh, but that, that kind of, it's not all but. But it's it, it's it's more sort of elegant and composed and less sort of floaty in a way than all. Mm -hmm. It's just the the way that they just nailed those character beats and those interactions and little things like he wakes up in the morning, he opens his eyes and puts a cigarette in his mouth. You know, just tiny little character bits. Yeah, he. What is it like? Levinson's one of those guys. I mean, there there's some other movies that are good, but I feel like. You can all you can't go wrong with his Baltimore films. There's just a quality to them that his other films just don't have, and it's distinct and specific. And I love it. I just love it. It's the spirit of Baltimore, which also inhabits John Waters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they, uh, the I'm less familiar with. Yeah, um, but there's there's like I mean, and even um, in fact, I remember a friend of mine getting really incensed after watching the. Uh, remember hum when Homicide first premiered. Mm -hmm. And the end of which Levinson produced was a creator on, I guess. And uh, and the last scene is a bunch of cops just sitting around shooting the shit straight out of a Barry Levinson film. Right. And I remember my friend going, "Oh, he's just ripping off Tarantino." And you're like, <laughs> 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 he's ripping himself off. 
Uh, but I love that. Yeah, he had a way of just letting characters talk in a way that that um, it, 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 you never felt bored. You never felt like you were watching anybody. Just well, he made an entire runner that when I saw it got applause just out of a guy asking, are you going to eat that pickle? And he, <laughs> he ran it through the entire movie. You know, just ask, you want to say, just, just say you want the, no, I mean, if you yeah. do that, just say, I want the sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that's a glorious. And, and I think the first time I'd ever, no, I think it's probably the first time we, we all really noticed Mickey Rourke was um, yeah. body, body heat. I think it was body. Uh, yeah. That one scene. And then, um, and yeah. then diner. And you're just like, who is this guy? He's just that great yeah. Brando kind of vibe. Um, Where did they all go? Because you know Tim Daly kept going in various things, mostly now in television. But uh, where's Daniel Stern? You know, Daniel Stern seems to pop up in in stuff from time to time. Gutenberg's still around. Yeah. I, I uh, like looks... every once in a while you see uh, overweight Tom Hulse now in a movie. <laughs> Shoot, that's that guy. You know? <laughs> but... We all get older. What are you gonna do? <laughs> what about? Uh, but let's talk about Sweet Smell. Where? Um... Yeah. Where, where did you see it first? Do you remember? Or? I saw it with my uh, girlfriend in 1991 because she had a film class and uh, took me with her to the class and we watched it uh, for her homework, basically. And, uh, you know, I was along for the ride. I didn't expect anything from a you know old 50s film, but I just realized, wait a minute, this is sort of the pinnacle of all the novels and all the material that I've been obsessed with and reading for the you know, lion's share of my entire life, all wrapped up in one movie with instant access to your emotions. They just, he throws in that girl who's the, the, the sister to Burt Lancaster's character. Yeah. And instantly you're, you're captivated. Is she going to get away? Is she going to, you know, you throw in that nice guy who dares to speak up, Martin Milner's character, who's who's the only one to speak, you know, truth to power. And it kills you, you know, and watching Tony Curtis make those decisions when he's, he's on the verge of being moral. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and something just tips him back, you know. So just in terms of drama, there was a, to me, the problem is there were so many great things that come out of the 60s or the 50s, and to some extent the 70s, because the initial people, were rooted in the theatrical tradition. Mm. And that to me is very valuable. I didn't study movies in college, I studied theater in college. So my background is more about, you know, the Globe Theater or John Gielgud than it is about oh, Kurosawa, for instance. But the theatrical tradition, mm-hmm. I mean, some people say it's, you know, look, 12 Angry Men may be dated, may be melodramatic to some, but the idea that that sort of thing mattered, that the character interactions and the power of finding emotion within the conflicts there, there's a lot of films now that just don't have a lot of conflict. Uh, they have none of the pretty shots because that's what suffered to me the most is that nowadays movies look better than they've ever looked. You have the most insane technology to make them sound perfect, look perfect. Right. But somehow the story often this isn't as good. I remember I went to see, uh, and there's this eye-popping millions of dollars of worth of uh, effects that just stunningly realistic, you know. And I watched it and I walked out to, eh, that was, you know, that. 
It's all right. And then I went home and I read the last half of Ross McDonald's uh, The Chill. And I, and I put the book down, but holy shit, that was so much better than that movie that cost $110 million to make. Um, it's not hard to hook people, I think. Uh, the opulent stuff is great. I'll see Godzilla and Kong tomorrow, like everyone else, because I'm a kid still. But yeah, there's just so much, uh, so much basic storytelling. I think Marvel at least understands to some extent that there's still a lot of emotion and story to be mined. It's not just punching. Yeah. It's got to be, it's, it's, uh, it's a Bruce Lee thing. It's got to have emotional content, right? It's like, it's not enough to have a great fight. You have to be fighting right. for something. Well, that's the very first Bruce Lee, isn't it, that I saw. It's a Fists of Fury. There's a kid, and he's selling rice cakes. And right, the police right. come and say, well, let me try him. Here, you try something. He goes, hey, where's my money? Here's your money. <laughs> he hits the kid. And here comes Bruce and he says, okay, I'm hooked. You yeah, know? I'm invested. Yes, I want to see him kick their asses now. It's very important. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but even, even to that point, I mean, when I think about, I mean, I remember seeing the first time I saw Sweet Smell. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw it like pan and scan on TV, you know, the way the way we used to. And the first time I saw it in a theater, like, my God, the, the, it, it's gorgeous looking. James Wong Howe just... Yeah. It looks like it was shot 20 years later than it was. It's it's so modern looking and so so visually stunning. I agree. There's one shot that doesn't really arguably add anything to the story, but it's the iconic shot where Burton Lancaster just goes and looks at the city and the mm -hmm. music kicks in. And he just stands looking at his, basically his kingdom, you know? Yeah. Um, I love this dirty town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but that one, that one in terms of the characters and, and just finding the unexpected heartstring tub. There's a guy in there um, who's sitting with his wife in a, in a restaurant and she's doing a crossword and it's clear that they've just been married forever. But he had a fling or not a fling, but he just made a pass at a cigarette girl. And Tony Curtis's character knows this. And so sits yeah. down and says, you know, I want you to do something for me. You know, I wouldn't want to have to mention the <coughs> cigarette girl, you know, and <laughs> in front of his wife. And finally the guy says, honey, I have something to tell you. I did something with a cigarette girl. It was horrible, bad judgment, bad taste, but I'm yeah. not gonna let this motherfucker blackmail me. His wife is actually playing the horses, and uh, and and Tony says, "Is there a, is there a horse named Cigarette?" Girl? That's it. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that, that that actor is Lawrence Dobkin, uh, who was um, uh, became a director. Uh, he was a, a very very prolific TV director. I know that, but that scene, because um, yeah. in the midst of it all, she said she says the line that kills you at the end. She goes, "Take me home, Herbert." You know, I think basically she says that's the first decent thing I've seen you do in years. Yeah, yeah. And I just things like that in that movie really. But the whole that whole movie is full of those little incidents that are just you know you could just they're modular you can take them out and just say you want to see a really great scene here's a really great scene yeah you know and the and the dialogue of course you know Clifford Odets and Ernest Lehman and you're a cookie full of arsenic yes. you know I mean it's they just they just they they don't not only did they not write them like that now they didn't write them like that then there is and it was apparently being rewritten 
like on the set in the back of, of, of trucks, you know, just typing away and doing new pages all the time. Yeah, as I understand, it wasn't really a, a commercial hit at the time, was it? No, it was a disaster. <laughs> it was too dark. It was, what are you telling? I don't want to look, I don't want to be with these people. I need a bath, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's great when those movies escape them. Um, but yeah, what was the film? God, there was a movie that I saw a few years ago at the Film Noir Fest, the Egyptian. And Odette's had written it like a year before Sweet Smell. And it really does feel like he's either ramping up to Sweet Smell of Success or all the lines that don't quite make the cut for that are going into this one. Because it's like B-grade Odette's dialogue. And it's hilarious. It's got characters saying things like, people with wax heads should stay out of the sun. And you're just like, you can just see him writing it going, eh, not, not quite there. I'll, 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 put, I'll put it in the crime movie. <laughs> it's, Right. But uh, I mean, that's the basic thing with Odette's, I guess, is, is good Odette's and bad Odette's are, are you know, a microscope, you know, a, a, a centimeter away from each other. But the difference is amazing. He's, uh, yeah, because, well, someone once said that to me. I had a friend when I was studying uh, writing in college and in class, one guy had said to the teacher, he says, I write realistic dialogue because I ride the bus. Sometimes I take a recorder and I listen to what people say. And I catalog what people say. And, I and the teacher said, that's not how you do it. You're not supposed to. I mean, you don't write how people really talk. You write how people talk in movies and make it sound like the way they really talk. Right. Because it has to be more pointed. It has to be more calculated, more powerful. Or, um, if, and I've seen screenplays, they just kill me, where it's like, hey, Bob, hey, Jim, you go to the party? What party? Sally, yeah. Sally's really, you got a car? I got a car. <laughs> Three pages go by, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's, but that movie, every line, and like you said, Joe, every scene, I think Tarantino benefits from that tradition in a way, because mm -hmm. movies succeed for me because it's not, it's not that you remember the entire movie, but they if you look on YouTube, all the scenes, you know, the, the um, Walken versus Dennis Hopper, you know, the, all the scenes that you remember, it's the equivalent in a suspense film of a set piece yeah. you know, that you can pull out and just marvel at. And if you have a couple of them in a movie, you got it. If you have 10 of them, like Sweet Spell of Success, then you can just watch it over and over as a primer, as a... Yeah. And, and imagine, and if they connect in any way to form any kind of narrative, even better. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. I, 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 well, obviously, I love that film. I mean, there it is. But uh, <laughs> cool. But so yeah, that was pretty influential because sure. uh, it it it's not about tough guys; it's about harsh guys. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. about you know, uh, and also it's about a stand your ground that isn't doesn't involve a gun or a, or a knife. It's a stand your ground that involves finding yourself in a moral wilderness, which is kind of what Philip Marlowe is all about when he talked right. about in the mean streets, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, because it, it often pops up at like noir festivals and you're like, this is not a film noir. And it's like, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> I was say, film noir is characterized, I think, by um, sort of, Des quiet desperation and sexual distrust in a way. And so if you look at that, there's plenty of it. Plenty of those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Uh, are, there, are you, are you, Joe, are you, 
defend Martin Miller. That's all. That's always the one thing. <laughs> I, I, defend Martin. Miller. He's got the. He's got the. He, it's the hardest part because yeah. he's the, the. He's the white bread character, and he's a jazz musician, which is a strange uh, choice. with Fred Katz, yeah. you know, and a whole bunch of real jazz people doing real yeah. jazz. Uh, and he's got some of the worst dialogue, uh, particularly when he says her, she says something to him and he says, that's day old fish and I won't buy it. <laughs> and it's like, you know, God bless him. <laughs> I mean, I, and he's, and he's, as, as always, he's, he's likable and, and he's, you know, and he's earnest and, uh, he played a lot of parts where they used that like in 13 ghosts. When I was a kid, he was like the, 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 the nice lawyer who turns out to really be the right. killer. And that was a big surprise because I was used to seeing Martin Mulder play good guys. Who was the uh, actor that played Kelso the cop? Uh, that was um, um, you know it's funny. Something it's it's interesting. I I I I I blanked on his name the last time he came up. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he's Emil Meyer. Oh right, yes. And oh. he's a, he's a terrific actor. He's in a lot of Don Don Siegel movies. And he is great as this cop. I mean, this cop character who speaks floridly. Uh, I call him the boy with the ice cream face. Yeah. <laughs> Come down and chastise you. you. <laughs> it's great stuff. What's what Tony Curtis is like? I like you, you sweat. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, I mean, some of the best characters, too, the best villains. I have a friend named uh, Tiger Williams who wrote Menace to Society. And um, we were both at a convention or something. We were asked to pick scenes that were our favorite villains from movies. And of course, you could go to all kinds of horrible people, but I can't even remember what I picked, but he picked Joe Pesci and Goodfellas as being the most terrifying villain. Even though he has no special rank or power, he's just unpredictable and you're scared every second you're with him. Yeah. And, uh, He's, he's as if Daffy Duck was a real person. <laughs> hey, because, you know, of all the cartoon characters, the ones that you would have to be the most afraid of would be the ones who are completely unpredictable and crazy. Well, there's, and there's a movie for you. Is the actual the actual Daffy and the terror that he uh, instills in the people around him, you know? Um, that's, that's, that's to follow up Tom and Jerry, the movie. <laughs> what do you Duck think? Movie. Is that going to be any good? Should we see it? I like Chloe Moretz. Is she good? Oh, I haven't seen. Yeah, it. I, be I believe it has come and gone in the sense of uh, really? it, it, it was not uh, it was not well received. Oh, uh, I think yeah, like a Scorsese version of one of those would be kind of interesting. You're right, like a, a hard R serious kind of Daffy Duck movie. <laughs> yeah, I never saw Fritz the Cat, which I guess was uh, Bakshi's attempt to do R Crumb. Yeah, Crumb hates it. Um, Crumb hates it. It, 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 it was very. It, it was successful because it was a, a, an anomaly. I mean, an R-rated, an X-rated at the time cartoon, uh, and it was just as dirty as the as the cartoon as the comic. But um, I just didn't think it worked. I, there was just something too cuddly about the design of the characters to make it work in that world. I thought there's something funny about Bakshi films. They always, uh, I'm always rooting for them, and they never quite deliver for me the way I want them to. It's, uh, I always got upset. Even as a kid, I recognized rotoscope for what it was. I said, well, this is an animation. You just film people and then you draw over it. You know, it <laughs> bothered me that 
is a sort of, uh, but now I realize that of course, that's part of the mixture. That's part of what makes it interesting. So, yep. Well, that's that was pioneered by Max Fleischer, you know, in, in the Coco cartoons. Coco the Coco the clown character was actually a rotoscope character, mm. even I think as far back as silent film. And and the Fleischers who were doing the most far out crazy cartoons in the early thirties and they, God knows what they were on. Uh and, and are 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 the hippest and the jazziest and all those things. And they're also um hard hard to program these days because of the, they're they're just so adult. What, what was the, who, who did the cartoons? There were always like a restaurant that's an underwater and only fish attend, but they're all celebrities just as fish or something. They have Dean Martin shows up and Frank Sinatra, but they're fish and they eat and they. They're, they're, Is that the incredible Mr. Limp? No, there's a I don't know. cartoon series coming out of the thirties. I want to say <laughs> where it's just a, it's, it's like a review. It's like a send up of all the celebrities of the day in animated form. Well, they did a lot of those, but I don't remember any particular one with fish. Oh, for some reason, I remember, but yeah. It, I know they did one where Frank Sinatra is on stage singing at the club, and they come out with the Undertaker starts to measure him, you know. <laughs> and they make him, like, super thin and pow. Yeah, very often he would be singing in the barnyard, and all the, all the, the lady chickens yes. would, like, be swooning. And, you know, the swooner crooner, I think, is the title. Of what's, it. what's the one? I think my favorite of those was, the, was it Bugs Bunny going to the Oscars? And they have just everybody there. And is that the one that, um, I just remember Ray Milland walks up to the bar, uh, gets a drink, and he pulls out a typewriter, and he puts it on the bar, and the bartender takes the typewriter and goes, here's your change. And he gives him five little typewriters back. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's just like as, as a kid, I had no idea what was going on. Because, like as a kid, who would watch Lost Weekend? And, right. And, and then, but then you're well, they weren't made, they for, weren't made kids, for kids. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but that's another film that's that's really remarkable for the day, I guess. And once again, like Joe said, it's too dark and it bombed. No one liked seeing a guy screaming in PTs. You know? <laughs> weird. Weird. You'd think that would have You know, the liquor industry was so upset with that film that they apparently offered to buy it back. Really? Oh, wow. I should have that film. I actually work with alcoholics because I myself am a recovered alcoholic and addict. But when I do my sponsees, the first thing I do is I show them Lost Weekend. And, I, you know, and they get it. Yeah. It translates effortlessly. The only thing they fuck up is the ending. Where suddenly the love of a woman saves him, yeah, and he's not going to drink anymore. That doesn't work that way in real life, you know. It, oh, damn! No, they should have just tipped up to the uh, ceiling fixture and <laughs> seen one more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, anyone who's ever lost a bottle or even a bag of cocaine and search understands completely when he sees it in that ceiling fixture, the joy. Yeah, parallel feeling of having found it. I can't remember that much joy in anything in my life. Because you know you're, you're you're you know you've lost it. You're you're miserable. You're reaching your coat pocket, and there's one from like two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, well, we're all beyond that. I, I used to smoke. That's about it. And yeah, that that moment, uh, not quite the same, I guess. But yeah, that that moment when you find yourself happily smoking a you know, mostly finished, butt because it's all you can find. You catch yourself in the mirror. <laughs> I got to quit. 
But the last weekend scene where he's walking, trying to find an open pawn shop, and they're all closed, mm-hmm. he's in his suit, mm-hmm. and it's hot sun. And I just, that scene kills me. You can just feel every step he takes in that movie. Um, and finally, I, I, if I remember correctly, he ends up going into a store and just saying, I'm taking this bottle, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know? um, well, the scene where he wakes up in the, uh, in the, in the ward, with the uh, with with Bim, the Bim uh, was weird, and I couldn't tell whether Bim was a good guy or a bad guy because he. I think you see him somewhat through the car, uh, the lead character's eyes, and he's 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 yeah. scary. <laughs> was Wilder was was any of that coming from personal experience, or was it just a subject he was interested in? I don't know his. I don't know. He co- he had a co writer too, so I. I don't know. Hmm. Who was the co writer on that? that was- he usually worked with Is he uh, Diamond. Yeah, was it him? It might have been. Pre, it might have been pre-Diamond. Um, it's, it's it's so amazing to have a computer right in front of me, where we uh, do these things. Um, oh yeah, it was Charles Jackson, Charles Brackett. No relation to Lee Brackett. Wrote, wrote it with yeah. him. Um, I don't know Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. Uh, I don't think any relation to Lee Brackett. I don't think so. Oh. Um, but these these films, uh, Lost Weekend and Sweet Smell of Success, they're films from fifties you know, and backwards. I mean, there are plenty of films that I grew up with that are still worth attending to over and over in my book. And uh, you know, the one I go back to that taught me everything I know about uh, the type of movie that I was later to whatever get a chance to to work on was the original Dirty Harry. Mm. Um, because it pioneered even when I, I saw it after Monday Night Football I don't know if you remember they used to have and then you know time permitting after football and they would show this sometimes a horribly edited version because the right. game would run over and uh, so, but even then it couldn't stop it from having an impact so I went and saw the whole thing and it it, it's the concept of the set piece that I didn't understand until then. You can pull completely organic, completely necessary scenes out of that that are these, you know, studies in suspense, these little mini movies, whether it's the running from phone booth to phone booth, mm-hmm. or it's the stakeout on the rooftop waiting for the sniper to check that door, and then he suddenly appears. And it, the bus thing where he's on top of the bus. And I realized, okay, so that's what set pieces are. That you pull those, and I would buy books on like suspense movies of the 80s or thriller movies. And they would say, they would just have photographs. Here's the something scene from Dirty Harry. Here's the, the something scene from Bullet. And I realized, okay, that's what you want. You want to be in that book. You want to be right. the people who achieves a scene of such a set piece quality that it becomes iconic and remembered in a book like that. Yeah, yeah, I get it. it's it's true, and it's it, the thing with that film. I, well, like like uh, the other ones you've talked about, but it it completely holds up. I saw it a few years back at the New Beverly. I think Edgar Wright was screening it during one of his weeks, and he asked beforehand how many people had not seen it. And you know, when he gets a younger audience there, and there was a ton of kids there had never seen Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. And the moment when the bus comes around the corner and you see Harry standing on that bridge the audience went nuts. It was like the film had just come out. It was amazing. They were just losing their minds. And the thing is, it's not a particularly 
well-directed film for a lot of it because it's murky, it's slow, it's the pace is on it. It doesn't matter because when they get to the set piece, also the stakes, you've never seen stakes like that. There's a girl, she's, and, and she's you know, been kidnapped and they send back a tooth or a finger or something and yeah. she's buried in there. Unless he gets, does what he's told, they're going to, She's going to suffocate in a hole in the ground. Yep. And um, also the idea of an Avenger who stands up for that girl, who has the classic line, what about the Deacon girl? Who speaks for her? Yeah. And you realize he spoke for her because the bureaucracy, everything in that movie when they get to City Hall is all of slow, stately, giant pillars and plaques. And, and it's, it's all the circuitous bureaucratic bullshit. But you'll notice that when Harry moves in that movie, he never wanders. He always moves in straight lines. While everyone else is, you know, fluttering like chickens and wondering what to do, he just walks in a straight line to the problem and then solves it. Yep. And it was revolutionary, I thought. i just never seen anything like that. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing film. Um, and I, I think we talked about this on the show before, Joe. My, my grand, I remember watching it once with my grandmother on TV, and she loves stuff like this. Um, her favorite movie is Brute Force. So <laughs> I'll give you. And, and I remember showing her, she loved horror films. I showed her Alien, and she, she thought it was all right, just a little talky. And, um, but, but she swore, she was like, they cut this movie. I'm sure they had, it was TV. She's like, oh, what do you mean? She's like, there's a scene where Harry shoots a guy who's running naked down the street. Like, what are you talking? And it's the scene he talks about it. Remember, he talks at the, 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 like, um, he shoots a guy with, you know, for, for intent to rape. And they go, how, how, how do you know he had intent to rape? He's like, when I see a guy walking down the street, what is the thing, Joe? He's like, with his dick in one hand and a knife in the other or whatever. With a knife in one hand and a hard on. And a hard on, yeah. collecting for the Red Cross. Well, a naked man is chasing a woman through an alley with a butcher knife and a hard on. I figure he isn't out collecting for the Red Cross. That's it. And, and it, but it was just so vivid. <laughs> she had filled it in in her mind. She had convinced herself. She. Had. But there, there, there's a scene like that in Persona, where uh, the the the, two, the one of the women talks about a, a scene where she has sex on the beach, and the second time I saw the movie, I was waiting for the scene where they had sex on the beach, and it turned out that it wasn't. It was just described so graphically that I assumed that it was a scene in the movie. Right. There's another example of that that I think is interesting is in a, a George C. Scott horror film, The Changeling. Oh. And in that movie, there's a scene where the ghost is described by a witness who saw it. Mm -hmm. And you're terrified hearing it described. And then later when they show it, it's nothing. You actually got a bigger scare out of the story being told than when they use bad special effects to try to simulate it later on. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's probably a lesson there. If we can only figure it out. Um. <laughs> well, this is it's the opposite of show don't tell. <laughs> this one it was tell please don't show. Yeah, no, but there's something to that. It's interesting. Sort of let it let it happen in the in the mind. Well, it's the Val Luton approach to yeah. horror films. You know, let them let them imagine it because whatever they can imagine is a lot more horrible than what we can. Show. Yeah, yeah. So often, um, but cool, cool. What's what's next, Shane? What do you got? Um. Let's see, what else? Um, what other films? <clears throat> I keep going back and the oddest films occurred to me when you, when you had called and, and asked for, like a film that I think is underrepresented oddly 
and was influential in my thinking was uh, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Okay. That comes up everywhere. Everybody talks about Darby O'Gill. Well, Seth and Vicar, I don't know. <laughs> no, literally, no one has. I don't think anyone's. Uh, that has never come up. Well, that that brings me to the question: What's Irish and stays out all night? What's that? Patio furniture. <laughs> <laughs> It's a canceled joke. Yeah, I'm, I'm half I'm half Irish, Joe. Half, <laughs> half of me wants to do Irish for the moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Darby O'Gill was a very controversial movie when it came out because it was too scary. And uh, a, a lot of parents were like, the kids came home and they were like all freaked out because it was so scary. And it was. It was really I scary. I think it's a noir piece because it harkens back to a murder or a loss that occurred 20 years ago on a stormy night just like this one. And it's replaying itself now. <clears throat> and he's coming to grips with this thing that he's been haunted by for years. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I found the concept of the Banshee. And also, it, it caught something remarkable to me, which I'd never seen before, which is when Darby loses his bet. He stakes everything and loses, and death comes. The Banshee's going to win. The co death coach comes for him. He lost his bet with the King of the Leprechauns. And he's actually flying into the sky in his death coach. And it's one of the most melancholy, brutal things. And in the midst of it, the leprechaun king says, you know, I just thought of something. And he gives him a loophole. And it's something you forgot about that was set up earlier. And all of a sudden, magically, he manages to pull it out and save himself. And and, and, but that scene where before they pull it out of a hat, where he's just lost everything and is being trucked up into the sky, into the, the, you know, the, un, the land of the dead. Um, the idea of a, of a wondrous backdrop and a kind of a movie that had that sort of mythic or child feel to it, but that had that mystery and darkness as well. It was, it played to me almost like a hard horror movie and a, Reminded me a little bit of a private eye film in the sense that it's a guy who's haunted by the past and, you know, is tempted by something in the present that leads to the unraveling and the solution of the thing that was so horrible that happened to him long ago. So, you know, that was. Did you see this when you were younger? I saw it when I was 17. But that's probably older than the general audience for that picture. <laughs> and I thought the forced perspective was brilliant. And, uh, you know, they blew out all the lights in Burbank. You know? really? <laughs> <laughs> it took so much light to light that huge area of course. to make the guy in the foreground look right. like he's, you know, and it's. Hey, we're going to take a quick break uh, from talking to Shane uh, to bring you a word from our sponsors. Just a heads up, pretty much all the movies uh, that Shane talks about on this episode are available at our sponsors. MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website. They're not only huge fans of our show, but they feature many of the movies we discuss here. So you can easily find them to add to your collection. Sure, you can stream a lot of stuff these days, but when you buy your favorites and you watch what you want and you watch when you want it, and, uh, and usually there's a ton of great content and bonus features like director commentaries, deleted scenes, all sorts of stuff. Buy your favorites at MoviesUnlimited.com. You'll find classics, imports, hard-to-find films, and, of course, new releases, too. The prices are great, and the choices are endless. Own the titles you love and enjoy all the bonus features that you just don't get anywhere else. 
doing anything? No? Then click the Movies Unlimited banner on our Trailers from Hell website and buy your favorites from hard-to-find films, imports, and more. Go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website, where shipping is always free on orders over $50. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Joe, you're on this podcast. Um, You know, I'm familiar with your work as a director, but you, you seem like you're also a film historian of sorts. Like, you know, everything and everybody that we're talking about with a few. No, I know, I know a bunch of stuff, but that's really only from a lifetime of, of, of a misspent youth, basically watching movies from the time I was a kid, movies and cartoons. Yeah. Uh, and it has turned me into who I am today and luckily provided a, a way for me to make a couple of bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like you retained more than most, though. Or, or the- that's because I have no other life. <laughs> I think it's more just that uh, some people sit well with it. It's just it, it's their passion and their you know it, it's it's like a book collection that at night you go and thumb through it and you pull some out. Yeah, sometimes it's more of a reality than reality. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's I I really likened going to the movies to going to church, yeah. except that I hated going to church. But but going going to Going to movies when the lights came down, I mean, that, that magic moment when, you know, entertained me, um, is, uh, it, it, that became a kind of a religion yeah. for me. And a, and a number of other people who went into those oh, yeah. So you went to a lot of movies alone, then, as did I, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 I have friends who say, why would you go to a movie alone? It's a social experience. No, no, no. It can be. Well, it is a social experience, but even if you're alone, you're not yeah. alone. You know, there's all the, that great, big, wonderful audience out there that that uh, Norma Desmond is pining for. I used to work at the AFCO uh, cinemas on Wilshire Boulevard when I was in college. And we, we all had the experience that there's always one movie that just didn't play. And the theater would be empty, but we had to run it anyway in case someone came and bought a ticket late. So the film would just be playing and we'd be eating our lunch in there. It's a, I always felt so bad for the people who made the film that's actually playing to empty theater. Uh, like one of those. Was- I've made a few. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, what would, do you remember the first time you did, you must've gone to the Avco to see something you'd written. Uh, to see which now? To see something you'd written. At some oh point. no, no. They'd never at the Avco. I mean, at the brewery. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, the Bruins. Yeah, it's lovely. It's got that wonderful stairway with the two. uh, Yeah. yeah. But. And they're still there, single screen theaters. The Bruin and the the other one. Are are we sure of that? Well, they were there two weeks ago. Really? (laughs) Okay. They were were closed. They were were there. Yeah, the Bruin is the National. Who is? No, the Village. No, the National's gone. Uh, It's the the Fox. It, it, It was. It was the Fox West Coast Theater. It's the West, the West what's it called? It's right across the street from the Bronx. And it was the place to have big movie premieres for all through the 30s. Yeah. We used to just go and get uh, Diddy Reese cookies and just gorge ourselves while we sat. We'd sneak them in because I, I think they still frowned on uh, 
bringing snacks. Yeah. Bringing snacks. Yeah. Well, that's because they have their own stuff to sell you, and that's how they make most of their money. Yeah. I was amazed by that when I worked there. There would be people come in <clears throat> the lines. I mean, no one was prepared for Empire Strikes Back. I worked that film, and no one was prepared. So the concession stand, you know, people standing in line for their watery fucking Coke, and the movie would start, <laughs> and they would miss 10 minutes of the movie getting their drink and their bonbons, you know? I couldn't understand how, I, I, thanks, you're helping the theater, but my God, man, what's more important? You can get popcorn anytime. Right. And was it, did they, did they back then, did they pop their own or was it uh, those bags that you had to go get in the basement? We used the bag, but then they would pop, they would fluff it. There was a machine. Yeah. yeah. Did you have to, this is a terrible digression. I, I worked at a, uh, Eric, the, was it Eric's place? I think in uh, Philadelphia on Chestnut street. That was a twin. No, no, no. It was, it was, it was one, it was a single theater. It was a smaller one. And, uh, and I remember we'd have to go downstairs and get giant bags of popcorn, but you also check for holes as rats would get into the popcorn. Oh. <laughs> mm. I walked uh, to this day, I will never eat popcorn out of a bag. Gave it that piquant flavor. <laughs> yeah, it's first yeah, time nothing. Popcorn, I can, get, I can tell you for certain that uh, at least one theater in Westwood, they would just throw the frozen hot dogs in the mop bucket. To oh. <laughs> oh, what to heat them up? To thaw them out, yeah. To thaw them out. Oh, God damn it. Well, no wonder all the Westwood theaters oh. are there. <laughs> <laughs> and it got so bad because we had a, you know, to save time, we couldn't take a half an hour to clean the theater in between shows. We had maybe 10 minutes because they right. had to start shoveling them in. So by the end of you know, the weekend on Empire Strikes Back, there was oh. a, a carpet of that nacho cheese. I'm surprised no one just fucking, you know, knocked their brains out slipping on it. Oh, God. Oh, those are the I came to see a movie. It's a fucking dump here, you know. <laughs> yeah, that horrible thing when you sit down, you feel something under your feet and just don't want to look down. So that, that complex is still open now. Uh, it's got a different name. Yeah. But um, it's still got the same number of theaters, I think. I haven't been there in years. I, and years. The last movie I saw at the Avco was probably That's Life, the Blake Edwards film. So. <laughs> That's been a while. <laughs> it's, it's right adjacent to the cemetery where uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe That's was right. buried. That's right. Uh, good Lord. Good Lord. I feel old. I feel old. Well, we are. I mean, to some extent, we need to. What's that? What's that you say? <laughs> because these are iconic things, which you know. Uh, nowadays, you people are watching films on their sideways-held cell phone, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's we weren't we weren't uh, we didn't sign up for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's where we are. That is where we are. Uh, you know, you know something. Who say how they save what two three hundred dollars? by using a dim bulb at theaters. Mm. And then all this work that, you know, Bill Musigman puts in, and then they, you can't see. <laughs> well, that was always the problem with, uh, you know, uh, when, when, when you're making a movie, they were, you'd have to go to the lab and you'd have to check the prints. And uh, sometimes, particularly if it was deluxe, there'd be a, a bad batch that were like all yellow or all greenish or whatever. And instead of throwing them away, they'd just say, send them to the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody who, 
saw a, a really bad print of something, it's always because that was the lab reject. Because they never throw anything out. Well, I was always surprised by people who would go to a drive-in to see The Godfather. There's just, just cringe at the, the sound coming from that little speaker and then the city lights washing against the screen. You know. in, in one of the darkest movies ever yeah. shot. Yeah. <laughs> car, car lights flashing by every few minutes. I mean, it's romantic in retrospect, but it's just... But that's part of the fun of going to the drive-in. You saw targets. <laughs> <laughs> there are, like I say, I, I had the best time this year was we went to, uh, we went to see um, One Night in Miami at the Rose Bowl drive-in uh, a few months ago. And um, it was the first time I'd been in anything. It was, you know, obviously it's not a theater, it's a drive-in, but it was the first time I'd seen a movie with a crowd in a long time. And it was just, it was such a joyful experience. <sighs> Yeah, I, I, I guess. I, I think the last big crowd I was in at a theater, because I, I would see movies, but they were indies, and the arc light would always be half empty or three quarters empty. Last big crowd was uh, The Force Awakens when I felt like I was part of something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great thing. There are movies that, that just are 100 times better for that experience, you know, that it's, it's, it's part of them. Um, but yeah. that... One of the things I was thinking watching Nice Guys again is, um, and obviously it couldn't, it couldn't be you because you did too many films with them, but we should have somebody come in and just do their 10 favorite Joel Silver films sometime. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing is people had at some point uh, credited me uh, inappropriately. They, they used words like uh, reinvent, uh, cop the buddy cop film, because Lethal Weapon had a kind of energy about it that they liked. And right. um, it's, it's just absolute bullshit. I mean, Dirty, Dirty Harry was there doing it as well or better fully, you know, 10, 12 years before. And 48 Hours was, that was Joel, I mean, Joel did 48 Hours, that was the Lethal Weapon. That was the one that was the game changer. Right which brought the tough guys back and the buddy film back. And, and, and that comic element too. <clears throat> yeah. So for me, you know, I maybe a little more melancholy or at points, but it was really 48 hours that I was sitting through three times. And, uh, you know, they, everyone was very willing to credit people. And I'm always fascinated by no one asking. And that's why this show is interesting. Yeah. We liked your movie, but where did it come from? Like Elvis Presley, we loved your music. Oh, where did it come from? Right. <laughs> there's a big rich history there leading to what would otherwise you know we would just adore this music but it's all a, a continuum yeah my brother had a big problem with eddie and the cruisers because this movie is about a guy who's way ahead of his time with this new music and i guess they got the beaver brown band to play it now my brother said it's just not possible he's a musician he said, you don't go from you know in the ocean to walking on land. There's all this stuff that has to happen. We don't <laughs> jump to Bruce Springsteen from right. Frankie Valley. It doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right, because it's such an obvious, huge Springsteen influence, and he's so influenced by music that's coming after the, yeah, yeah. It's a uh, <laughs> good point. But similarly, you know, these, these movies, I, Quentin Tarantino, um, you know, he's one of these people who gets to make the lists of movies that he loved and that 
people have a chance to sort of go back. But and often his his stuff that isn't even movies. It's like TV shows, combat, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. Who would have thought? Mine biggest thing on TV was always The Fugitive, the David Jansen show. Mm, sure. Yeah, me too. It was still one of the best shows ever. Yeah, it's just incomparable. And the, the number of good shows versus, you know, filler, it's like so many, 80% were winners. Mm-hmm. And it's just, once again, it's, it's a case study. It's a masterclass in suspense. They just knew how to arrange scenes to just make you think, oh my God, there's no way out of this. And it taught you reversals, setups and payoffs and all these things. Unfortunately, the, the legacy of that show has been completely subsumed by the, uh, the, uh, the movie, the movie version. People don't even know it was a TV show. It's never, you, you can't, you can't, you'd have, if you look for it, you can find it. But no, it's, no it's one's pushing enough. it the way they do some of the old shows. I mean, yeah, yeah there's a box set, but you have to buy it used. Yeah, yeah, Jansen. I came late to him. I, I did not see the future. I mean, it was too young. I guess when it was first aired, but um, Jansen was amazing. Uh, I'm actually, I love. Um, I, I bet because I know the kind of stuff you read as well. Were you a Harry O fan? I, I was, but but not as much as the Fugitive. Not as much, yeah, those guys knew how to do black and white. Mm-hmm. I mean, the '70s was was some of the ugliest stuff on television. But once again. The, the, the way that they composed for that tiny aspect ratio and the way that they used black and white and chiaroscuro and, and just, God, it was so amazing to me. I can't, in other words, I can't watch an episode of the $6 million man, even if I love this, the plot because. Yeah, it looks so bad. It, 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 it repels you. It pushes you away from the <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I remember when, when uh, um, a couple of years ago when Twilight Zone came out on Blu-ray, and uh, uh, I, I bit someone had them on sale. I was like, ah, I might as well own these. And it just boggled my mind that uh, I, I think we've talked about this before, Joe. But they were working at a time when there was no concept of of other media. You know, it was like it's TV. Right. People are going to watch this on a screen that's like you know the size of my phone or a little bit bigger. It's going to be terrible reception. No one's ever going to see it looking beautiful. And yet you get these guys. You know, Jacques Tardier comes in. And yeah. they direct the shit out of it. And you see them on Blu-ray and they're cinematic. They're gorgeous. They're, they're little movies. Yeah. And it's like, they, who are they, who are they making them for? And you're like, they, they were, they were just doing a good job. That's it. With these almost certain understanding that no one would ever see the work the way they intended it. In textbook noir, a couple of those with uh, yeah. the episode where Jack Cludwin, I think has a son who died. He ends up in this abandoned amusement park. But before then, he's just in this shitty apartment and he talks to his landlady. He's always saying, it's to laugh, isn't it, Mrs. B? It's to laugh. And it's that kind of wonderful, chewable dialogue, but the grunginess and the, and the sadness that came out of the black and white. Yeah. Well, some of the stories are very melancholy. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that comes out of Serling um, and you know, his, his predilections and... Uh, uh, he, there's an episode called Walking Distance where Young goes back to uh, the past oh. and sees his father when he was a, himself when he was a kid and his father. In a, in a, in a, and uh, I, I always I always loved the episode, but I watched it after my father died, and I was like in in tears for like a day because sure, yeah. uh, it's just so moving. And it's got a Bernard Herrmann score, and it's 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 the best thing that Young ever did. 
Uh, and it's a, it's a great episode. And, and there's, a, there's a, a bunch of episodes that, that I think Serling felt that were, I think he thought one third of the episodes were really great. He thought the other two, the other two thirds didn't work, but, <laughs> but they always tried. They always tried hard on everything. There's a, there's a, a, a book uh, that lists all the episodes and tells how they were made and what, what was disappointing about them to him and what wasn't and everything. But it's, it's a, it was, it, it, it's not an accident that that show is still remembered. Yeah. When so many shows that were on TV in that period. Yeah, but like you say, the work is, uh, to the, at the time it was invisible. What's amazing to me is when they do the HD transfers, how much they can actually pull out. Yeah. Uh, well, it's shooting on film as opposed to today. Yeah. We don't shoot on film anymore. And so what we have doesn't really exist except in ones and zeros. And, uh, and you know, it, it's, I always, I, I did a series for Showtime called Rebel Highway, which was a bunch of remakes of old AIP juvenile delinquency movies. And there were, there were 12 of us directors who did these things. And, uh, and we shot them on film and edited them on tape and they were shown on Showtime. And then I went to the producer, Deborah Hill, and I said, so you guys going to cut negative on this stuff? And they said, no, why would we want to do that? And I said, well, because, because you, you, won't, you won't own anything in 10 years if you don't have a print of it if you don't have something to go back to really and they said well do we have these d1s and i said it's called a d1 because there's going to be a d2 and a d3 and a d4 <laughs> and every time that they do it they're gonna have to dupe it and it's gonna get fuzzier and sure and so as a result that show is those episodes are out in various you know formats but never in blu-ray because there, you, there's no possible way to if you bump up a bad picture it's just going to get worse so that uh, so much of television from the late 80s the mid, mid 90s uh, to the 2000s is is kind of irretrievable if it wasn't if it doesn't exist on film yeah, yeah. there was the there was the brief period of the sort of the digital intermediate where you know you would just sweeten it a little but even that i mean i had a, a guy shoot a film who was light on set and it wouldn't look that good. And I'd say, are you sure? And he goes, yeah, I can fix this later. Right. And then I'd say to him, okay, well, let's go. Let's hurry up on another setup. And he'd say, no, no, this one, if we shoot now, I, it'll look like shit later. I won't be able to fix it. So it makes you go fast when you can just leave everything to later in the, you know, in the turning knobs and dials. But, eh. Well, but still, we, the technology has allowed us to see movies from 70, 80 years ago in better shape than they probably looked even when they were on, on film. True. And then you get the Peter Jackson with his restored, interpolated World War One footage. And uh, that's yeah. It. Yeah. That stuff's amazing. When you see footage from that era, just sort of sweetened and colored and, and processed so that it's moving in, in a human speed instead of a hand crank speed. There's something really disorienting and surreal about about that to see people walking around the streets of san francisco in 1912 looking yeah. real it is it's fascinating but you shouldn't fool yourself into thinking that it's an actual representation of what they look like no because yeah it's it's computer guessing yeah if this is blue and it's probably blue here as well you know it's it's right well it's uh, you've seen the deep fake uh tom sure. cruise footage it's remarkably convincing. 
Uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg to what they can do and what they will do and probably are doing. Uh, and the idea of having some political figure come on and say mm -hmm. something that, you know, triggers a world war uh, and a fake video is, um, it's not out it of question. I'm surprised somebody, nobody's written a story about it. It also paves the way for plausible deniability for any number of offenses, because if, for instance, they, I never said yeah, that. That's <laughs> not me. <laughs> well, that was, uh, you know, in the whole Trump thing was like, he kept acting as if nothing he had ever said had been recorded. Right. And so he'd say, he would just say, I didn't say that. And then, well, then they'd show him that he, and, and he would say it was, like, <laughs> you know, fake it's, news. it's fake, fake news. news. It's fake news. It's not, and now, and now, plausible deniability is that you can, you'll be able to say that, and people will sort of say, "Well, yeah, I, I saw that Tom Cruise thing. I mean, he didn't say it." Right. So the P tape is pretty much useless at this point. Yeah. <laughs> one, it, it could be. Yeah, you can make one. That's the thing. Um, well, you at least it's in color. You, you do. I mean, and you mentioned a little bit. And I definitely. It's like normally we stick to movies, but I know you're a you're a voracious reader too. Am I correct? And Oh yeah, I am. Um, hang on, I'm just trying to track down the one that uh, you and I were. You sent me something. Aha! Here we go. Yeah, I made a list, and um, I thought I sent a copy of. Uh, there was like two other movies. Let me think. Oh yeah, no, you did. I'll uh, I'll let it here. We 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 pretend that uh, we don't get these in advance. I never I never tell Joe what it's going to be. Well, obviously you didn't look at it, so it's the same as if you did. Oh, I looked at it. Good Lord. Uh, let's see. <laughs> you looked at it and immediately dismissed um, it. Um, <laughs> if you think we're talking about Darby O'Gell and the Little People on our show, you're yeah, well, you, uh, you Yes. Uh, 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 <laughs> say, what do you think of Gene Hackman? You got any Gene Hackman movies you like? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, of course, there's, there's one that um, embodies the spirit to me of, of you know, all the way. I wish I'd written it. But at the same yeah. time, it's a little too dry for an audience today. And that's that movie, Night Moves. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, it didn't exactly thrill the audience when it was new either. <laughs> but once again, um, it plays so realistically, you forget that it's a thriller in the private detective mold because instead of talking about damsels and gats and this, it's no, it's a guy who's just, you know, wears button down shirts and, crumpled suits and is a realistic private investigator. And when you see a murder happen, it's actually quite shocking because what you've seen leading up has been so realistically done. Um, and, and great dialogue, like, she goes, will you stop that? I can't hear myself think. And he says, lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you get stuff like, I mean, the climax on the boat with the airplane, which could be, almost should be, this like ridiculous over-the-top action sequence. And yet it's got, like as you say, right. it's grounded because it's, it's terrifying for that. Yeah, it, you just buy it 100%. And the whole thing is about smuggling. That's the great part about it. It shows the filmmaker's preference because in the background, you see all the smuggled antiquities coming up on you know, balloons. And you realize the whole thing was about greed, but they're just thrown away practically. It's just, oh, okay, there's the solution to the mystery. now. But now we're back here with the character. And... It, it just comes together in a realistic way. Things don't present themselves, you know, starkly and dramatically. They present themselves, they unfold the way life unfolds. They're awkward. The conversations are awkward. The violence is awkward. And that's a lesson that uh, 
um, I think is the Cohen's certainly understand, which is the idea that violence never goes quite as smoothly as you intended. It's always, if you shoot someone, they fall down and shit themselves, if you hurt your hand, you slip in the blood, and it's all that, you know, kind of, you know, violence after you've shot the guy and you walk around and he's still alive, and you go outside and you smoke a cigarette and you go back in. And I just adore <clears throat> that degree of realism and Night Moves is really full of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great character piece, as you say. I mean, that seems to be like sort of, is that sort of the dividing line in the, the American detective genre versus, say, the British yeah. genre where the, the focus is... They think it's Chandler. It's really more, it's Ross MacDonald. It's, uh, it's more Lou Archer than it is Philip Marlowe, but there's a the great line where he says, the Paris Yulin is talking. He says, Harry thinks blah, blah, blah. Harry thinks, I think Harry wants, he says, I think Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make me eat that cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Harris Eulin is so perfect. It, you know, he just has this quality. I never, did you ever, I can't, did you ever work with him? Either? No, but he's one of my favorites. He's very old now. Um, yeah. I've always wished I could. Um, him and people, and then there was the, uh, J.T. Walsh, the actor who died years ago. He was one of my favorites yeah. as well. I wrote his last movie. What now? I wrote his last movie. What was his last movie? Uh, everybody thinks it was Pleasantville, and I think that's a much happier legend. We'll go with that. He did a little, it was back during my straight-to-video days, a thing called Hidden Agenda, um, starring, not not the one you think, uh, starring Kevin Dillon, Matt Dillon's brother, okay, Christopher Plummer, and J.T. Walsh. And uh, uh, oh. Plummer and Walsh, for the first time, I got to see really sincerely world-class actors do my dialogue. What's become of the film? Is it a, is it in the pool on Netflix or? I, it, it's it's somewhere. I'm sure it's. Look, Amazon yeah, Prime. That's, that's usually that, that's usually that. yeah where you find those things. But um, yeah, but it it. Uh, yeah, what what one would you recommend I see of yours that I might not have? Of mine. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's uh, the the straight to video years were pretty cheesy. I would have to say it's uh, they're there to be avoided. And uh, okay, all right, that's fine. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm they're they're good for a laugh. Uh, happily, I survived that. But um, uh, I did a I did I love saying I, I get this from Joe. I did a couple of pictures with Mark Lester, um, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed working with Mark. He was he was a lot of fun. But yeah, none of them none of none of the movies I wrote in those days. Okay, Mark Lester, who directed Commando? Was that Mark Lester? Mark Lester. Yeah, I think I scared him because. Uh, at our first meeting, you know, I was still young and dumb, uh, as opposed to old and dumb. And I walked in, and all I did was quote Commando doing doing, art. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't think he was used to that. <laughs> but uh, that's that's uh, that is that is one of the great. I that is a great double feature, by the way, with uh, not to blow smoke up anyone, but uh, that and Predator. Um, it's it's just such a nice encapsulation of that era somehow. Yeah, I'm actually a fan of Raw Deal as well. Broad deal, yeah. You shouldn't drink and bake. I'm always startled by uh, the lasting quality of Predator. I think it has to do largely with the makeup. And because really, it's Friday the 13th with soldiers, you know, looking picked off one by one. And, right. And it's, uh, could have gone the way of many a similar movie. Um, but, yeah, boy, I screwed up that last one. Oh, it's a fun film. Very, very fun film. Very fun film. The script that you wrote that I wished I had been able to direct was uh, The Last Action. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, 
because I think it's I think it's one of the best scripts you ever wrote. I, I don't think it's necessarily one of the best movies that w- were ever made from it, but um, it's just there's so many really fascinating things in that in that script. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I, it, you know, I, it, it's it's weird to be alive for so long that not only have you made films, but they've come around again, like the Monster Squad was a stupid. Not stupid. It was a little movie we did in 1987. And uh, now it's playing to packed audiences on the cult circuit and generating more money on Blu-ray than it ever did as a feature. Yep. So, yeah, and the same thing with Last Action Hero. It's, it's somebody's favorite movie. I mean, it's not that good. Someone's favorite movie. I mean, my theory is that every movie is someone's favorite movie. Yes. Well, that, that's, that, is the, that is the general yeah. health. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The Convoy with the song T.W. McCall is someone's favorite movie. Someone is watching that for the <laughs> tenth time right now, as we speak. Um, well, how about uh, I'm trying to think of how to segue into that. Do you have any horror movies on your list? Speaking of monsters, um, um, I'm trying to prompt you towards. Uh, uh, you, you had a horror film on your list. Oh yeah, the well, horror film. Started with Abbott Costello meets Frankenstein. Which is a winner. (laughs) It's a winner. And, but once again, and talk about, you know, someone who was, uh, began as a documentary filmmaker and brought that expertise to a piece of horror fiction, which he described. He said, I was puzzled when people told me this is Friedkin talking. I was puzzled when they said that I was directing a horror movie. I was doing a character piece about the mystery of faith and a priest. And the exorcist to me is just, you know, bravura filmmaking. It's, it's incomparable. And there are a couple of films like Jaws is another one where if you put them on for someone now, there is no, this happened. This is a 30 year old film. They're just in it as though it were released yesterday. And I don't particularly like the William Peter Blatty cut that he did later. I like the Friedkin cut, which was released. You know, my brother was of age when that movie came out. He's older than me. And he remembers the people, you know, uh, being stumbling out of the theater and going to the bathroom to vomit or having to lie down, you know, and have someone stand over them. And is he going to be okay? You know, and, and I even had a, a picture. Uh, it was turned on to it by a friend of mine. And the picture which I had hung up was, it's from the rooftop of the building across from the theater where the exorcist opened in New York city. And it's a picture of the theater, but then there's the parking lot and it, the parking lot is full of 150 people, 200 people just milling around the cars. They're not in line. They're not going to see the show. They just saw the show, but they're not ready to go home yet. So these total strangers just band together to talk about what they just saw. And I thought, Jesus Christ, that is the goal. You know, people said, look, before I go home, I just got to say, did you see the same thing I saw? And they stood there. So, yeah, that's a that's a hell of a movie for me. Yeah, that is the goal. That is the goal is to try to get that kind of reaction yeah. from people. Which I think is always sometimes sometimes you can do it with a good movie and sometimes you can do it with show. <laughs> but you still can get a reaction. And that's something. I think it's one of the few things I sort of figured out is that 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 if you end, um, you know, if you end on a bit of a question, 
the audience is forced to do that. You kind of trick them into having to do that as they walk out of the theater and they have to talk about. It. Give an example. Um, well, I, I do the right thing. It's one of the great ones where it's sort of a, it's like, why did he throw the trash can through the window? And that's the thing, you know, everybody walks out of the theater having that conversation. And there are so many different things you sort of figure out about the film, about yourself, about the subject in that conversation with others. Um, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, simple stuff, you know, I, I ended history of violence with just sort of a characters looking at each other and you don't know what happens next. Right. And you know, that number one question for like, what happens? Do they, do they stay together? Does the marriage work out? I'm like, that's, that's up to you. You have to, but if you wrap it all up, if you're like, here's the killer and virtue is in here, they are getting medals and everything, you know, and the day is saved and now they go home and they go to sleep and everybody's happy. Um, you're, you're sort of, they close the book for you and you're not, you're not compelled. Well, there's some questionable endings or, or open-ended uh, conclusions to a story yeah. that are more satisfying. Yeah. If they close it, like the ending of The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes, yes. It's actually better than if you knew what happened. Right. And the end of The Graduate. End of The Graduate, sure. Sure. But yeah, and then that, and then the notion that there's a right or wrong answer too, you know, is, uh, that else cracks me up. I think didn't, didn't a little while ago, somebody came out and they're like, I've cracked the code. We know what's going, you know, Kurt Russell is, uh, or no, I guess Keith David is a thing, is the theory now. And I'm like, who cares? It's, you know, the movie's over. They cease to exist. Now it's, now it's in your ballpark. Now you get to play with it and figure out what works and what doesn't, what it all means. Yeah. I, you know, I can't, I, I had a friend who had a brilliant take for a sequel that I can't tell you because people say, hey, you just gave away my, my take. Ah. Um, well, there, there's already been a remake. Yeah. Or a prequel. I guess it was a prequel. Was a prequel. Yeah, a remake as a prequel kind of thing. That was interesting. Um, but yeah, but then, then there's stuff like, you know, the last Lord of the Rings film, which people complained had 10 endings. And I'm thinking, but I've been on this journey for so long. I actually enjoy the, you know, 40 minutes of farewell at the end of that, that epic journey is kind of nice. It, it uh, uh, yeah. definitively closes the door for me, but. Uh, I guess I had, uh, I had issues with the, just watching continuity between the effects and then the, the actual New Zealand or Australia, wherever they shot it. It just, I, it just felt so perky jerky to me. Um, I was not a Lord of the Rings aficionado. Ah. Yeah, I, I fell. I fell for it, and uh, yeah. I don't love the books. I, I got to say though, it's a big savvy decision on the part of a uh, uh, guy. You know, I had some friction with back in the day, Bob Shea. Smart man yeah. said, "Let's put all our money in this basket," and it paid yeah. off. It paid off. It was a remarkably, a remarkable gamble that that worked. But it, boy, it, it it really was a gamble. I mean. To, to gamble all that on the idea that there's going to be more than yeah. one of something. It didn't work out for the golden compass people. Well, there's, you know, there's the back to the future two and three shooting simultaneously as well. You know, that, that hasn't happened a lot. Um, I guess, yeah. I guess Marvel did that recently. They shot, I guess they shot infinity war as one big thing or did they? I don't, don't know. Yeah. But that, that seems like those things, those seem like, you know, back to the future two and three, you feel like a safer bet. And, and, you know, a big, a big Marvel movie, it feels like a safer bet than going out with something new and assuming there will be sequels. Yeah. But once again, it all comes down to, you know, all the money they pour in, but the basic setups and payoffs, even at their most primal level, like, um, 
Bob Gale, you know, of all the, at his most basic and just rudimentary, even to the point of dumb, he has a character, I hate eggs, I hate eggs, don't give me those eggs, and at the end he falls in some eggs, you know. <laughs> okay, we get it. You know? But the used cars had so many great setups oh. and payoffs in Yeah. You know. And, and, and the idea that is so prevalent in mysteries, which is what I've taken from books mostly, but you find a movie, the thing that's forgotten. So just when it's, you plant it, and at the time it seems like it's just there as part of the story. Yep. Going by. And then later when everything's gone to shit, someone says, and they reach out and they took that thing you forgot. And you go, oh God, of course, I should have, I should have thought of that. And that's the thing I love in movies. Is when oh, that's the greatest. Yeah. 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 I remember as a kid, just sort of starting to notice things like that and realizing, oh, they planned this. Yeah. You know? Like I think those are my Oh, the actors aren't making up the dial. Who knew? Who knew? I just thought they get up every day and they're like, what's going to happen now? I don't know. Let's rob a bank. Okay, they rob a bank. Well, now what happens? You must have both of you gotten the question, of course, you know, do, do you do the dialogue as well? You know? <laughs> I really think that everyone just gets together to make a movie the way you have a softball game. You know? Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, some, some movies are like that. Yeah, that or or if it's an adaptation, you know, it's like, wow, you just you just you know, it was just you just copied the book, you just took the pages yeah. out of the book, <laughs> turned it into present tense or something. And there have been a couple of movies that were made that way too. Very much so. I was talking the other day. Someone got very mad at me because I suggested that Silence of the Lambs had a wonky structure because it's initially supposed to be part two of a trilogy, right. and Hannibal Lecter was introduced as the big deal in the first one. I mean, you have this movie where he's haunting the serial killer and then halfway through it stops and you follow this other character who escapes and runs away and does all these for a an hour. Mm-hmm. And then they say, okay, now back to that, uh, the mystery that we started in act one. And like, no one notices that it's this odd thing that why are we suddenly following this side character for an hour? Because he was the main character in the trilogy. Right. Well, Red Dragon, Manhunter, uh, sort of does the same thing, where it just sort of stops being, you know, about about this guy and 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 the relationship with Lenny. Just focus on your killer, you know, and it just becomes his story for a yeah. while, and then back to. But it's it's that's a movie that uh, suffers from style. I think it, it's oh. really good. It's really good, but you know, I could do without the lingering blue light and the slow pans and. Dolly, it's just come on. The material is there. We don't have to doll this up, you know. I don't know. I, I love doing it. I, I still love it. And but I, I remember at the time, it it it's not as though you didn't notice then, and it only becomes noticeable now in the passage of time. You knew instantly that you know it was that distinct. You just on Miami Vice, you know, it was it was somehow it was cutting edge and dated at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but, but with all the stakes, it was effortless because there's that great, he does a great thing with the flashlights on the stair, mm-hmm. blood. Yeah. And there's the one line where he's talking to his recorder very dispassionately. And he says, you know, even with his throat cut, he pursued him into the hall because he was heading for the children's room. And you go, oh my God. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. 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 When That's you have stakes like that and you know another family's been targeted. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is an amazing film. I think I own every different cut of that movie. Is he uh, is he done editing that film? Do we think or until he gets the 
gets the uh, notion to go back and do it again. I'm, I'm there for it. I'm always happy to see him. He's, I think, he, I think he's, he's too busy working on recutting. The <laughs> oh, is that actually happening? I, well, I, I've, I've heard it's don't, coming out. I don't I've heard there's so. a Blu-ray coming. So. But what's so great is a, is a director who's so interesting that even the failures are infinitely watchable. Yeah, 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 no, he's... Uh, then again, you know, um, I'm also a fan of the book, The Keep, and there might have, I know the, the author didn't like it. The author of the book even wrote a short story about a writer who's screwed over by a director who ruins the book, the novel. Oh, no, really? <laughs> so. See, art begets art. Yes. It is how we get our revenge, I guess, finally, right? We, we yeah. Have you, had, have you ever had uh, your work attacked by a, a director that you didn't get? Well, no, that's a terror. I can't. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, we're not in a room. Yes. <laughs> very, very much. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's. Yeah. Has anybody ever asked me? Do you write the dialogue? I mean, these are things that you know. Yeah. <laughs> we have all been there. I'm afraid. I'll tell you um, a funny story that uh, Jim Brooks told me, and it's it's off topic, but he said he was sitting next to a studio executive. Not even that. One of the heads of the studio, and he'd shot a film. And uh, I think he told me in, in the film, there was a girl, a character with her back turned on screen and maybe there was rain or something. And people who saw the preview didn't know, they thought it was another character. They didn't realize that it was the girl. They were fooled and thought, oh, wait, is that her or is that the other girl? And it was confusing. So when the part came in the screening with the producer, the studio executive, he leaned over, he says, just, uh, just so you know, this confused some people. They didn't know which girl, which actress this was. So we're going to reshoot it. Just this shot with her turned around and her face towards the, the camera. So we'll, we'll take care of that. And the studio executive said, well, can't, can't you just flip the film? <laughs> True story. <laughs> Not uh, eminently believable. <laughs> Sorry. I've had, I've had them say when you show them in the old days when you do uh, crown marks on the on the picture to denote a dissolve. I've had uh, executives say it's not going to be like that when it comes out, is it? <laughs> executives. These are executives. These people are supposed to know more than you. Well, you know, so many of them are lawyers or business majors. Or, you know, they're all lawyers and business yeah. majors. So every now and then, you run into one who loves movies. I have to say. Yep. But that's almost more dangerous because they fancy themselves. In <laughs> As Robert Bond says in SOB, one thing I know is I'm a damn good cut. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think that holds up? I was, I was almost tempted to throw that on the other night. I haven't seen that in a many. It made many me very years. anxious. I, I don't know if I'm ready to find out it doesn't work anymore. What about, can we, can we organize a... Um, the overuse of loop lines to explain away things that people say in screenings. <laughs> like I've, even in Minority Report, which is a really interesting movie, it goes to the back of his head. And that's the guy I saw on the train earlier. <laughs> and it just ruins it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or uh... I think it was was it looped? What's the um, the Zemeckis Harrison Ford uh, horror film? 
Um, what lies beneath? What lies beneath? Remember, there's a there's a scene early yeah. on where they're dri- not 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 his finest. They're moment. they're driving across a bridge, and and the looped line is, you know, it's so annoying the way your cell phone just cuts out when you cross this bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, gee, you know, I. But that's a line that needs to. That's a line that needs to be xeroxed and put into almost every. Yeah, movie. and you know, I'm sitting there <laughs> like, ah, oh, I wonder if that's gonna. I wonder if that's gonna come in handy later. That bit of information. <laughs> My pet peeve is you have a character who's supposedly an expert or professional, or it's a hitman or a detective, and they walk up to a building and they stop and they take out a piece of paper and they look at it and they look at yeah. the address. Like, <laughs> what are you, a fucking idiot? It's, it's 811. You got to check your paper? Yes. You know, it's just nuts. And it's the same thing. Um, like you said, the, the car ride across the bridge where you play out an entire scene in a wide shot of the car driving. Those things that drive me absolutely batshit. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, but, but cell phones, I think, are the worst. Um, I'm, I am so, so, we still have to do it. You still have to account for cell phones in screenplays. And uh, well, that's because that's why you can't remake anything. Yeah. That's why it's such a joy going back to, you know, go back to your work to watch something like Nice Guys. And it's just like, oh, you know, there's not a single moment where I miss somebody pulling out a friggin' cell phone and, and well, having to explain why it doesn't work. You could count, I'm sure, if you, hundreds of times in modern movies where someone said, no bars. Right. Like, I can't get reception, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, my, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, my, um, I wrote directed a, horror film around 2000 and one of my actors was a friend of yours and you you let us screen it at your house uh because you had a you had a nice big projector set up infested mm-hmm. it was david packer yeah and um and and one of the five just did this whole thing it was like zombies around it was like the big chill attack by zombies and um uh i i got so annoyed with the cell phone thing that rather than just use it, I made it almost a major plot point. There's like 20 minutes of the movie where they're running around with phones and climbing the roof and chasing after the bars. Cause I was like, if you're gonna do it, just just go whole hog. Yeah. But God damn it, what well, that's, that's what a, a theater director taught me that once. He he said there was a play where someone had to, you know, move a chair from here to there. So when someone came in, the chair would be there. So he would have a character like come up and bump the chair, another character lean on the chair and kind of move it a little bit. And finally he said, fuck it. So a character takes the chair, walks over and puts it down. And that's the way you have to do it. You shine the light on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, uh, well, Shane, um, thank you, man. Thanks so much for, for joining us and uh, talking oh, movies. Please. No, it's, it's a real pleasure with both of you. You're, you're both so knowledgeable and, you know, it's, it's almost daunting. Uh, because we've seen all your yeah. work. <laughs> you probably remember more about the actors involved in the production than I do in many cases. So it's just really a pleasure. And, uh, you know, let's all stay safe. And I wish you both continued success. Uh, thank I, you. And, you too. And you. Thanks, Shane. Yes. Thank you very much, man. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made. Stay safe out there, folks.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 